take your Bibles, if you would, and open up to Romans chapter 10 uh, this morning. And the children are dismissed to Children's Church at this time. And uh, they always have uh, fun uh, there with Lorna, and we thank Lorna for her work uh, in that. We're going to continue moving through Romans chapter 10, and we're going to be doing verses uh, 5 through 13 this morning. So if you want to open your Bibles or open your Bible apps or flip through your smart pads or whatever phones you have, uh, that's where we are this morning. Follow along as I read the Word of God here for us. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth. It is in uh, your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart Uh, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you today and we want to just give you praise and we want to ask that you would be at work through uh, the preaching of your word. We ask that you would open our hearts and our our eyes and ears to see and hear and understand uh, the beautiful and wonderful treasures that you have given us uh, in your word, that we might delight in you. I pray that we would delight in proclaiming and acknowledging that you are Lord. Lord, I pray that you would give me the words to say as we work through uh, this passage this morning. That as we hear these words, we would be a people uh, who respond in faith. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. We're getting into a passage of Scripture where Paul is going to begin to talk about the importance of the preaching of the Word. Uh, In the next section, as we look at uh, in two weeks, uh, you'll see that he talks about the importance of taking out the Word and sharing the Word and and preaching the Word because there needs to to be a hearing since faith comes through hearing and hearing through the Word of God. But in this section, we are continuing with this idea of contrasting the, the idea of getting your righteousness through works or through the law with where does salvation and the gift of righteousness really come from? It comes from Jesus and it is received through faith. Our main point this morning is simply the gospel must be believed so that we might receive righteousness. We need to put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection. If we do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not saved. If we don't confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, we are not saved. The flip side of that is to receive salvation. That is all that we need to do. 
We do not bring salvation to us by how we live our lives. We do not bring salvation to us by, by something that we do, by obeying God in some way. Even keeping good commands of God does not bring to us salvation. The Gospel must be believed so that we might receive righteousness. Number one this morning, because righteousness comes through faith, we don't do anything to Christ, but we believe. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We put our trust in Him. It is an act of faith where I am saying, in effect, I have nothing to give to God. All I have is my sin. But I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. His death and His resurrection. And through that, I receive what He has done on His cross and His resurrection. So, we start out with this passage in verse 5. We have this principle that the law lays out. It's a principle of the law and one must do it. Romans chapter 10, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. It's a quote or an allusion to Leviticus 18.5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. The law lays out commands of God. And the law gives instruction. But the principle behind the law is do this. Respond in this way. This is how you obey. And in the Old Testament, the law was given as a response for the people of Israel how they should live in the land. And it laid out this very clear principle. Do this and you will live. You will live in the land and it will go well for you. And part of Paul's argument has been in Romans, if you are going to rely on the law for righteousness, if you think that righteousness comes through the Mosaic Covenant and the good commands of God, then you're going to have to do everything that it says if you want to live in righteousness and have it. So Paul has said in Romans 2.13, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. If you are going to seek a righteousness before God through the law, you have to do everything that the law lays out. And this is the point that he made that we looked at last week. That that Jewish people at this time were pursuing a righteousness from the law, not through faith. They weren't trusting God. They weren't looking for the Messiah. They rejected the Messiah when He came. And and when I say Jewish people, I don't mean everyone. Of course, there were many getting saved at this point. But as a whole, Paul says they've missed what God has done. And so in Romans 9.31, but Israel, who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness, or the law of righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Israel took the law, which was supposed to be a good gift from God, and she said, okay, I guess this is how I get righteousness. 
which is not the purpose of the law per se, but she took the law and said, okay, if now if I just keep it, I can get the righteousness. So they sought to obey God, to have righteousness with him. And Paul says they never reached the law. They never measured up to its standard. And so in Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes this, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Everybody who thinks that they can be saved by keeping and obeying commands of God, works of the law, things that the law says, do this. Everyone who relies on the law is under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. The law gives us instruction. It gives us moral guidance. There are aspects of the law that give us ceremonial things that were for the time of the Old Testament But the law does reveal the character of God. But all of those commands also reveal something. It reveals that I am a sinner before a holy God. And that I cannot have righteousness by trying to keep the law. How do we know that? Paul says, because the Scriptures say, the righteous shall live by faith. That there are people who have a righteous standing before God. Where does that come from? That comes from believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and receiving Him through faith. The Christian walk after that should be one of obedience, one of responding to God. But what I need to stand before God comes through faith. And so Paul goes on here and has this idea that that we cannot uh, ascend into heaven to bring down Christ or even descend into the abyss to bring Christ up. Now, what he has in mind here is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, And where he is going with this is kind of in a roundabout way saying, you didn't go up to heaven and bring Jesus down in the incarnation. And you didn't go into the grave and, and raise Jesus up from the dead. No, you believed in those truths. And the idea then goes to connects to what Paul has been saying. You don't work for your salvation. You didn't accomplish it. You don't do anything for it. You receive what Jesus Christ has done. And so, through believing, you receive something based on what Jesus has done. So when you think about salvation, you ask yourself this question, who does the work of saving? God, in the Lord Jesus Christ. What do I do? I simply come as a beggar and say, I've got nothing. You think about a beggar on the side of the street. And a beggar asking for money and asking for help and expressing his great need. Does the beggar do anything to earn what they get when someone gives them a dollar? 
They simply asked for it. They simply pleaded. They acknowledged, I I don't deserve this right now. I've done nothing to earn it. It's not a wage that you're paying me. It's something you're giving me out of mercy. And so it is with the grace of God. So, look at Romans 10, 6 and 7. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, bring Christ up from the dead. So we have there just subtle allusions, as I've said, to Christ coming down as his incarnation, and then Christ being in the grave. I think that the abyss there is language of, of the grave, or sometimes in the Old Testament is called Sheol. The idea of bringing him up means, who raised him from the dead? Did you and I do it? No. Notice, though, how he introduces this phrase. Do not say in your heart. Do not say in your heart. It's actually that, that little phrase uh, is also repeated in Deuteronomy 9.4. And I think Paul knows what he's doing when he says this. I think he's making an allusion. Because in Deuteronomy 9.4, God says to Israel, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out, the, the nations, before you, do not say in your heart, it is because of my righteousness that God the Lord has brought me uh, in to the, possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess the land. Uh, Deuteronomy 9.6 Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. And then he says this, For you are a stubborn people. You ever say that to your kids? I'm pretty sure my mom said that to me when I was a kid. You're stubborn. Stop it! God tells them plainly, Israel, You're in the promised land. You are going in there. I'm driving these nations out before you. Yes, these nations are wicked. And yes, I am judging them. But don't think you're better than them. Don't think that I looked at you and said, you're righteous and they're not. For you're stubborn. The temptation for Israel is the temptation for all of us. We get going on in our lives and God is giving us good things and we think, wow, I must be doing something right that God would respond in this way. And we we subtly over time pat ourselves on the back. And the temptation was that Israel would be in the land and she would puff out her chest and she would say, I'm righteous. Look at what God has done to me. Look at all the things I must have done to obey Him and to respond to Him and be the good nation. Don't say in your heart that in and of yourselves and the way that you live your life and you behave is righteous and better than other sinners who are out there. We do have a tendency sometimes in the church where even when we know that we're saved, we forget that our salvation is by grace alone. And we do start to think, well, I'm better than other people. You may be in the phase of your life where you are 
following God's commands better than those people that are out there or others who aren't Christians or even more than other Christians. But why is that true? Because God did a good work in you. Because it was His grace. And you're standing with God. You're being in a relationship with God is through faith alone. Where you've received a gift of righteousness. And so in the Old Testament, as I've said, God was never uh, expecting, never wanted Israel to think that she was righteous. Salvation in the Old Testament was never about Israel doing enough good works or having some sort of self-righteousness. Was she called to obey the law? Yes, but that was to be in response to God's grace. And so Paul then, in quoting these passages, he actually then quotes a much larger section from the end of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 30. So just to kind of give you a, a broad brushstrokes of the ending of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 28 and 29 lays out curses. If you disobey me in the land, this is what's going to happen. And the end of the chapter, Moses says, I know who you are. God says through Moses, we know who you are and we know you're going to disobey God. And you're going to go under the curse. And the ultimate curse is going to be, we're going to, you're going to get kicked out of the land by God, the exile. And that's what happens when they go into Babylon. Remember Daniel in Babylon and Israel is in exile? Why? Because they broke the word of God in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 30 gives them this promise that when they are in the land and they respond to God and repent, God will be gracious and merciful. The Lord will return them to the land. When they look to Him and respond, He says, If you are outcasts to the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord will gather you. From there He will take you. The Lord will bring you into the land of your fathers, possessed that you may possess it, and He will make you more prosperous and more numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, that you may live. That command there, circumcise your heart, that goes through Deuteronomy. The idea is they're stubborn in their hearts. They're, they're dead in their hearts. They need a, a new heart. The old heart needs to be cut away. And so the imagery there is a physical circumcision. But God's saying you need a, a new heart, a, a circumcision of your heart. That actually is in Jeremiah and Ezekiel as the promise of the new covenant. The, the storyline of Scripture in a nutshell is that Israel broke the old covenant, the law of God. And God promised to send a Savior through something called the new covenant. Where God would put His law right in their hearts. Where God would change their hearts. Paul is making an illusion to these verses because then it says in Deuteronomy 30.12, it is not, speaking of the Word of God, it is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea uh, that you shall say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that, that we may hear and do it. The Word is very near you. It is in your mouth. It is in your heart so that you can do it. And Paul says, what is that Word that is near you, that is in your heart, that you can respond to? That is the Word we are preaching, he says. 
That's the Gospel. He's basically saying Deuteronomy 30 was looking forward to the time of the New Covenant. And that's what's come in Jesus Christ. So don't go back and think, well, I can obey God. That would be like saying, well, yeah, I can bring Christ down. You see what works-based salvation is like? It's like robbing credit from God. In a roundabout way, it's like saying, I didn't need Jesus to come. I didn't need His death and His resurrection because I can do it on my own. And many of us would never wish or want or desire to deny the death and resurrection of Christ. But I tell you this, that when you rely on your strength, on your ability, on some quality of behavior inside of you to think that that's what makes you pleasing before God, you're robbing God of His glory. Put simply, if you think that you can earn your salvation, you have lost the Gospel. If you think that your good works contribute in some substantial way to the righteousness that you have before God, you have missed the Word of God. You can't bring Christ near. You can't raise Him from the dead. All that you and I can do is put faith and trust in Him. Paul's making, in effect, two arguments from the book of Deuteronomy. One, it is God's saving activity that we respond to. Deuteronomy 30 looked forward to it. It says there's going to be a time and a day where there'll be an exile and God will respond. And part of that, one day, He will bring the new covenant. Now, now Deuteronomy doesn't use the word new covenant but the concept is there. Because it's the same thing that Jeremiah and Ezekiel talk about when they say a new covenant is coming. And the idea is God is going to do this. It kind of brings new light to the language of Scripture when it says all we like sheep have gone astray. And you read your Bible, and I hope you read the Old Testament. And you see, even those heroes of the faith, the Davids, the Gideons, have sinned and need a Savior. And Israel, time and time again, walked away from God. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our only hope of salvation. The second thing Paul is making the argument again is that righteousness does not come by doing I respond to God by faith. The point is we respond to the work of God. We hear it. The Word is near us. The only doing that we do is saying, I can't do anything. Instead of saying, I'm going to accomplish this, we say, Christ has accomplished this and I receive that. Look at verse 8. But what does it say? The Word is near you. It is in your mouth. It is in your heart. That is the Word of faith that we proclaim. God's righteousness comes near through faith. How is it that I can stand before God? I can pass the bar of His judgment? 
I can know that I'm saved? Do I trust the Lord Jesus Christ? Have I received Him through faith? Number two this morning, second this morning, because righteousness comes through faith, faith, we must confess and believe to be saved. Paul boils down into a nutshell, what is the response that we give? I would encourage you, if you haven't already, memorize Romans 10, 9 and 10. It's a, it's a great verse to, to, to say to someone when you're trying to, to share the Gospel with them. Uh, there's a number of great verses in Romans. Sometimes we call it the Romans Road because it kind of walks you through uh, a line of verses. If you'd like to know what they are, uh, I'll tell you after church. Just talk to me. But it's a, it's a great, simple way to have in the back of your mind uh, how do I share the Gospel with someone? What are, what are the key things that I need to say? And this is kind of the, the capstone. Someone recognizes they're a sinner. You're talking to them and then they say, Okay, what do I do? Kind of like the Philippian jailer asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? Now, Paul hadn't written Romans uh, Romans 10, 9, and 10 at that point, but he says basically the same thing in Acts. But Romans 10, 9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. What do I need to do to be saved? Two basic things that go hand in hand. They're they're interlocking, if you will. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Do you believe it? The idea of confessing here is say it, profess it, acknowledge it. Make that statement and acknowledge that it is true. And then believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. So there's the the outward confession that He is Lord. And Lordship here entails two things. It entails acknowledging His deity. That He is truly God. And it entails acknowledging His kingship. His authority. He is Lord. He is ruling. He is the King. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 that God worked in Christ a power when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things under His feet and gave Him, Jesus, as head over all things. This is an allusion to to Psalm 8. And if you look at the preaching of the Gospel, particularly in Acts, particularly in Acts 2, part of the Lordship of Jesus Christ is He has all authority and power. You think of the Great Commission. How does it start? All power and authority has been given to me where? On heaven and on earth. This is part and parcel of the confession that Jesus is Lord. God has crowned Him with glory and honor. He is the Christ, the King, the Messiah. The fascinating thing about this is Paul writes this to the Romans. And guess what everybody in Rome was saying? Caesar is Lord. 
Caesar was considered Lord, a king. He was considered also a, a son of God, divine in some way. And even uh, one of the, the verses in Peter, First uh, Peter, where, where Peter calls Jesus both God and Savior, actually that exact phraseology, God and Savior, was used to describe the Caesars on the throne. And they would make these coins and they would put the name Caesar on them. So, you know, we say on our money, you know, in God we trust and we're passing it out. And in theory, we should all remember that as they're buying things in the market, even as a Christian, they have to use money. And they're passing around coins that are reminding them who's the boss, who's in charge, who's the Lord of the empire, Caesar. This is why Paul will go on in chapter 13 and say, yes, but you do have to submit to the government. You don't worship Caesar, but you have to obey him as the authority that God has established. And yet, Paul calls Christians to profess Jesus is Lord. And there were times in the Roman Empire and after the days of Paul, even when there was Roman persecution, that this was one of the sticking points. They professed that Jesus was Lord, not Caesar. And there was a line in the sand that this profession of faith was countercultural. That they were, in a sense, taking their life in their own hands to, to publicly confess, even in a private church setting, to, to publicly say something like that. Yes, I believe Jesus is Lord. It, it, there could have been agents of Caesar there. Much like in communist countries, where people have to keep quiet what they believe and gather in secret. And yet they profess this, Jesus is Lord. This is, was not a, a private faith that you just keep quiet. And yet, Paul tells us it's not merely an empty confession. In other words, it's not just something that we say with our mouth. If we just utter these words, then suddenly we're saved. You can't go up to a stranger on the street and say, hey, could you just do me a favor? Just humor me and just say the words, Jesus is Lord. And they go, okay, Jesus is Lord. Great, you're saved. Good, on to the next person. That's not evangelism. Because here you'll see that you need to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Now, this assumes you're also believing that he died on the cross because you wouldn't need to believe in a resurrection if you didn't believe in, in the death as well. So Paul's not minimizing believing in his death and the purchase on the cross. But Paul is highlighting the most controversial fact. You need to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. There are other passages that tell us we need to believe Jesus is the Son of God. That we need to believe that He died and rose again as well. Paul says this, these are matters of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15. The core of the Gospel. But you have to believe in your heart. You have to be putting trust and saying, yeah, Jesus didn't just stay dead. God raised Him up. And part of that raising him up is he seated him at the right hand of the Father. God raised him from the dead. He is alive. And where is he now? The fulfillment of Psalm 110.1. Sit at my right hand until I make all the enemies a footstool under your feet. 
That's being Lord. Sitting at God's right hand, ruling over all creation. And then Paul says in verse 10, with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So, just understand this. Paul is, is taking this together. He's not telling you you can do half. This isn't like a, a two-step process. Um, well, you know, if you believe Jesus is rose from the dead in your heart, that's good. And then later on, if you confess Him as Lord, great. Paul, Paul is saying, these are the interlocking things that bring salvation to you. With your heart, you believe. That's the faith. And so he says, you're justified. Remember, righteousness that comes by faith? Justification means you're declared righteous. The moment you believe in Jesus, God, as the judge, gives you the verdict that you will need on the last day. The gavel comes down from the judge and he declares you to be righteous. Because you trusted Christ. Righteousness is not something that you add to your life in this sense. Righteousness is what you receive when you believe. And when you believe, you know that you're going to heaven because you have now a righteousness from God. I don't earn or work or appropriate, or bring to myself righteousness so that I can stand before God. I go to God by faith, and He gives to me a righteousness so that I can go to heaven immediately. And hopefully not immediately. We hope you're around to live the Christian life. But if you were to die immediately, you'll go right to heaven. The thief on the cross. And Jesus' words... Today you will be with me in paradise. The second aspect of this interlocking, intertwine, with your mouth you confess and, is, and are saved. You confess these things. You acknowledge them to be true. You make a profession of faith. At some point, It needs to be something that you say. Sometimes people think that if you just believe these things in your heart, you can walk away and don't worry, you're saved. But Paul emphasizes here, you you say it. You confess it. There's nothing magical about verbalizing it. But the idea is that what is believed in the heart is easily confessed out of the mouth. From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If I believe all these things about Jesus, why would I not want to make this profession of faith? Jesus is Lord. I see what He did in His death. I see what He happened in His resurrection. I see these fulfillment of Scriptures that Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the Father. I believe that He's the eternal Son of God. Man, He's the boss. He's king. He's God. I profess this. I'm not going to mess around with Caesar anymore. So you have in Acts chapter 2, one of the earliest preachings of the Gospel. 
This Jesus God, this is Peter speaking, this Jesus God raised up, and we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out on this, poured out this that you see and are hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know that God has made Him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. And then it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I want you just to notice something here. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Peter says this, God has made Him both Lord and Christ. How did God make Jesus Lord? Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He's eternally divine. He is King and Lord from all eternity past. How did God make Jesus Lord? The same way He made Him Christ. His being made Christ is that He is installed as a King. His being made Lord here is that He is installed as a ruler. This this lordship profession of faith is not merely, yeah, well, okay, he's God, he's the Son of God. It's also a profession that God took the eternal Son of God, brought him to earth, had him die on the cross, he was raised from the dead, and now he is exalted where everything is under his feet. His human resurrected feet. You see, the profession of faith that Jesus is Lord entails both that He is truly God from all eternity past, but also that He is the King and the Messiah and the One ruling over all things. You are acknowledging who He is and that He is the head of the universe. That it is not Caesar who is Lord, but it is Jesus who is Lord. When Paul talks about the conversion of the Thessalonians, he says, you turned from worshiping idols to serve the living God. This is what the repentance entails. This is what the confession of faith acknowledges. I know who Jesus is and I believe in Him. Some applications this morning. The Bible here is very clear that salvation, at salvation, you are making a confession that Jesus is Lord. To confess something. The word means something like to acknowledge something. Ordinarily in public. To acknowledge, to claim, to profess. You're not just making a private, personal claim you are acknowledging a universal truth. 
a truth that should be evident for all the world to see. The Bible is really clear here. Part of receiving salvation is the open, public, even we might say verbal statement of acknowledging, yeah, Jesus is Lord. Now, obviously, when you first get saved, you don't understand all of the implications of that. You, you may not recognize all the demands right away that that is going to make on your life. How many of us have had some sort of sin when we get saved and, and over time, God reveals it to us? We're not perfect because we profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, the very beginning of salvation of my walk with the Lord begins with this. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. And I say with my mouth, I confess it to be true. Jesus is Lord. You don't make Jesus Lord of anything. Some people will ask the question, well, have you made Jesus Lord of your life yet? And, and it's an okay thing when, you, you know, have you responded to Jesus? Are you, are you obeying Jesus? But when you get saved, you don't make Jesus anything. You confess what is true about Him. And it starts there. And do you want to honestly tell me that you are comfortable confessing that Jesus is Lord and then going to thumb your nose at Him? Well, I've confessed He was Lord. What more does He want? Why should I follow Him? You just came before the King of kings and the Lord of lords and acknowledged who He is. In believing in Jesus, there is some kind of bending the knee. I'm not perfect from there on out. I'm going to sin. And part of sin means I'm not yielding to His Lordship. But that doesn't negate the fact that coming to Jesus is a seeing who He is. Paul describes his own conversion as seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And he describes that as what goes on at our conversion. When God saves you, He showed you who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And, and perhaps you, you, He exposed some sins in your life. And perhaps some of us were even brought to tears as we began to see, oh my goodness, I am, I am far worse. What can save me? And then you heard someone or someone told you, yeah, but look at what Jesus did. He died on the cross. And He conquered sin and death. And we know He conquered it because He rose again from the dead. And you say, wow! That's awesome! You see Jesus! And you see who He is, the Son of God. And you, in a, in a sense, you see that now He's raised up and He's sitting at the right hand of God and you say, yes, Jesus is my Savior. I need Him. Please, Jesus, save me. You are the Son of God. You are the Lord of all things. And you profess that faith. And when you profess that faith, God has done a work in you and made you a new creation. 
Salvation comes through belief. Notice how the passage ends. For everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Then in verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing all of His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Two, three quick things that I want you to see from this passage. And we'll actually work through the the verses backwards. Number one, verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's actually a quote from Joel 2.32. And in Joel 2.32, it says, Everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh, Jehovah, will be saved. Jesus is Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament. God is one God, but three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Paul takes this verse that has the divine name here in the Old Testament, and he says it in a context where he's telling you, whose name do you call on? The name of the Lord. Who is the Lord? Jesus. Jesus is truly and fully divine. That Old Testament name for God is applied to Him right here. Second, notice that everybody is saved the same way. Jew, Greek, rich person, poor person, African, Asian, South American, European. We are all saved through calling on the name of the Lord, because the same Lord is Lord of all. Jesus is the Lord of all things. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians chapter 2. Won't you profess that now? Won't you make that confession now? See who He is. Put faith and trust in Him now so that the day, at the day of judgment you are not bending the knee because you are forced to, but you are bending the knee because you delight in seeing your Savior realized. And then lastly, verse 11. For the Scriptures say, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. I want to make this personal application about shame. Sometimes... Some of us have had really deep, hard experiences with shame. Maybe we've been humiliated. Maybe we've been embarrassed. Maybe we've gone through some kind of depression. Maybe we've been at a spot, even in our Christian life, where people were so mocking us and making fun of us, we began to wonder, why do I even believe in Jesus When it says here, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame, it doesn't mean that people in this life won't try to shame us. That we won't go through something where others are are acting and, and we feel shameful. It means that at the end of the day, when you stand before God, you will never look back and regret, why did I put my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? You will not, on the day of your death, show up at the the gates of heaven and be mocked 
and be laughed at and jeered. Oh, you thought you were going to get in here? Ah, That's a good one. You will not be kicked away. You won't even be ushered in the back door. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those who put their faith and trust in Him will not be put to shame. There is a day where your faith will be vindicated. It will be brought to light and God will show everyone, yes, this is my child whom I delight in. Because they put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the day of judgment, there will be people who have mocked and jeered and made fun of Christians and thought it was just a bunch of hocus-pocus. And they will stand before God and they will see the redeemed of God. And those who shamed you will be put to shame. But if you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will find it was worth it. You will not be put to shame. And I pray that wherever you are in your life today, that one, that would be a confession that you believe. Jesus is Lord. And whatever you are going through, you would have that hope of the future. Do not give up here and now. Do not feel overwhelmed and shamed. Cling to this promise. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before You today and we just want to delight ourselves in You. We want to delight ourselves in Jesus, that He is the Lord. That You are wonderful. That You are awesome. I pray that we would be a people who delight in sharing this Word, of proclaiming the Gospel, of announcing and heralding to others that that Jesus really is Lord. And if people put their faith and trust in Him, they will be saved. We pray that You would remind us of our confession today. Remind us as well that the strength of our salvation does not reside in our ability to confess in You, but it resides in Your mighty power to save. And that we trust You to do the work of saving us. Oh God, be merciful to us. Be merciful as You already are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.